0: Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 241, the Pell Mell Rhyming Guitars 12 inch EP. Uh, you and I have a very special affinity with instrumental music, having played in a combo together for years that didn't have vocals. And uh, we love a good intro record generally but especially a good one on SST, and this is a great one. I just love it, and we've got a special guest.
1: Yeah, we've got Bill Owen on the show.
0: Yeah, it's great to have Bill on, one of the founding members of the band, to give us some insight into this uh, very unusual, at the time, record. But I would argue now, like, way, way ahead of its time, right? Oh, it's aged well. Yeah, I had the exact same thing. I wrote this down all over, I'm just like... This sounds as fresh and as hip as ever, you know? Just like you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. That's exactly how I feel. Yeah. Um, before we get into it, Brent, why don't you hit us with some spiels?
1: Okay, I am skipped last week because we had some other stuff to talk about, but I'm, I've am i got this, I guess, the C section of my 10 albums going alphabetically. Yeah, the 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 latest, uh, digestions? I guess so. Is that what you call it? Yeah. Well, I'm still waiting for you to, you know, name each one. To name? Well, you just did. It's the C-section. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> more. I was thinking more like, <laughs> you know, see, there's some good fucking recommends in there, man.
0: Okay. <laughs> Something okay, well, more like that. Let's go with that one. Okay. okay.
1: <laughs> I've got my cockatoo, uh, quill pen here. All let's right. do it. Uh, let's see Cassiber man or monkey German avant-garde rock band active from around 1980 to 1992 on German label riskant no idea where I heard of this band but this is your w- weekly weird recommend it's jazzy they're sampling it's noisy sounds like something Zugs might have been into minus hmm. the minus the potty humor check that out Cassiber Cassiber
0: yeah. yeah. There are less bands like that these days. I was just listening to Grotus this mm. weekend. Remember Grotus? I sure do. Yeah, I was listening to that, and I'm like, there aren't many bands like Grotus anymore. Yeah.
1: Is that is that Grotus-esque or different? Uh, different, but same wheelhouse, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, the Cool Greenhouse, self-titled, 2020. Fairly new band, UK post-punk. When I was making notes for this, um, I see they actually released their second album last year. So I'll have to check that out and, and see where it might have stacked up in my honorable mentions or or maybe my even my top 10. Who knows? Because this is really good. The band is led by Tom Greenhouse. He kind of has a Marky Smith thing going on, mm. but he sounds more like Christopher Walken when he, <laughs> when he does it. <laughs> okay. That could be good. Yeah. Critter's Buggin'. Host 1997 on Loose Groove Records, the label formed by Pearl Jam's Stone Gossard and Malfunction drummer Regan Hagar. Their band together, Brad, also has some releases on Loose Groove. Um, this host record by Critters Buggin is their second album, came out in '97. Not sure what their status is as a band now, uh, but they haven't released an, an album since 2004. It's weird, jazzy, world music rhythms. There's some wild samples. Sometimes it sounds like 70s fusion. The musicians are all super prolific Seattle dudes from other bands playing with like Nels Klein, Les Claypool's Frog Brigade, Garage A Trois, tons more. Mm. Consonant, Love and Affliction, 2003 on Boston label Fenway. I, I think this band came on my radar when I was researching for our Volcano Sons episode. Yeah, and we're going to have a Roger Miller episode in a few. Yeah. Burma's Clint Conley is guitarist and vocalist in Consonant. It's mm-hmm. a bit of a super group. Chris Brokaw of Come and Codeine, Winston Brahman of Thalia Zadik's band, Matt Cadane of Bedhead. It's kind of got a... A 90s East Coast Canada feel to some of it, actually. It's a bit Mm lo-fi. Sounds like maybe the Hardship Post with Clint Connolly on vocals. Yeah, it's more subdued than Burma, but it's good. Yeah, it is good. Christ vs. Warhol is the name of the band. Descent, 2010, on a label called Dance Macabre. I guess you'd call this Death Rock. They were LA-based. It's super gothy, but with a sharp punk rock edge. At times, very Beneath the Shadows era TSOL. Mm. So if you're in the market for, for something of that sort, it's really good. Yes, I am. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Camper Van Beethoven, Key Lime Pie, 1989 Virgin. They come up on the show from time to time, Mm -hmm. usually from artists. I'm not sure I've ever really talked about my love for Camper Van Beethoven. The major label era, Key Lime Pie and Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart is, is kind of my favorite era, but they really never put out a bad album. I actually came to the band through Cracker, who I saw on Letterman when I was like 16, playing their their kind of big hit, Low, and I love both bands ever since. Omnivore reissued some of my favorite Camper Van Beethoven albums like 10 years ago, so I snatched them all up, and this was one of them. Uh, Chris Gates and Gatesville, 2010, self-released on his Anodyne label. Chris is a legendary Texas musician. Typically as a guitarist, not necessarily as a band leader, I'm talking Big Boys, Poison 13, and of course, the one and only Junkyard. (laughs) Uh He was one of the main songwriters in Junkyard, along with David Roach, the, the singer, and you can tell when you listen to this, his voice is more of a gravelly baritone, and this is more like southern rock almost, although Junkyard had those elements as well. He does his own version of the Junkyard classic Simple Man, which should have been a number one smash hit. It's kind of Skinnerd style on this with an extended Freebird type solo. It just rules. Underrated songwriter for sure. Speaking of Junkyard and underrated songwriters, Chris Kakavas, whose name I've probably always said wrong, i have to check with Jeff and Soraya on that one, and uh, his band Junkyard Love. Their self-titled debut from 1989, Chris comes out of that Paisley scene, playing with Green on Red, Dream Syndicate, Danny and Dusty, many others. Primarily as a keyboardist, but he also plays guitar and sings, as he does on this album and many others under his own name. Lots of folks from that scene are, are involved in this. Steve Wynn produced it, Mark Walton, Tom Stevens, um, Robert Lloyd... Johnette Napolitano, they're all on it. Keith Mitchell of Opal and many others is on drums mm. on this. Uh it's Rootsy Americana, like something you'd hear on one of Tom Petty's more Rootsier albums, maybe. Just great playing, top shelf songwriting. His vocals actually kind of reminded me of Vitas Matare a little bit. Oh, no way. Yeah. The Coupe de Grace, or the Coup de Gras, I'm not sure how they pronounced it. It's Coup de Gras. Yeah. And if
0: you're if you're Bugs Bunny, it's the Coupe de Gracie. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we'll go with Coup de Gras. Self-titled, 1990, um, their debut. This is a Minneapolis band that I for sure heard mentioned on that Radical Research podcast uh, that Jeff Wagner and Hunter Ginn host. Maybe in relation to Mind Over 4 or Anna Cruz's or one of these progressive thrash bands of that era. This came out on Red Decibel Twin Tone. I couldn't find too much out about them. They they had a second album in '95, and then they seem to have just dis, just disappeared. None of the members, uh, you know, appear to have done anything of note before or after this band. It's up on YouTube. It's really good '90s alternative metal. Kind of surprised they weren't bigger, actually. It's hmm. super riffy uh, thrash with a slight progressive edge. Love it.
0: Yeah, that sounds
1: like it
0: could have taken off
1: mm-hmm. almost in the in the early '90s. Yeah, for sure. Cheap and nasty. This is my last one. Beautiful disaster. Mm-hmm. You like cheap and nasty? No.
0: <laughs> I I know the cheap nasties. Oh,
1: no, this is yeah, cheap and nasty.
0: Yeah, I don't know what cheap and nasty is. It's probably hair metal. What is it?
1: <laughs> Not hair metal. Uh, it's called Beautiful Disaster, 1991 China Records. This is a post-Hanoi Rocks project. featured. Feet- <laughs>
0: I see. I knew that. I knew them. I know the cheap nasties. Yeah. That of course is like associate, you know, an Aussie band, right? Yeah. Cheap and nasty. uh, Yeah. Okay. Not a hair metal band. Keep going.
1: Yeah. Featuring UK sub Alvin Gibbs and Hanoi guitarist, Nasty Suicide, uh, who uh, does guitar and vocals in this band. It's actually a little poppier than Hanoi, but it's definitely under the tipsy gypsy umbrella, Mm. you know, dolls, thunders, Hanoi, not hair metal. This is uh, this is their first album. Their second album, Cool Talk Injection, is also really good. That's all I have, Ryan. What do you have this week, Brent?
2: I've
0: got a new segment, actually. Are you ready?
1: <laughs> yeah, I like these production values.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this week it's an edition, the first edition of Ryan's Handy Hints. Mm. Okay. Ready, Ryan's Handy
1: Hints. Okay. Yeah, great, great theme music for Handy Hints, by the way.
0: Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And it's the Sloan edition. Ryan's oh. Handy Hints, Sloan edition. Okay,
1: ready? Yeah, well, I, I could use these because I'm going to see Sloan tomorrow night. Yeah,
0: so check this out. Here's some Handy Hints. I was going to do a Watts on Bass. I have a bit of a Watts on Bass backlog, but uh, I'll do it next week because this week I saw Sloan. And I got a spiel about this, and I have some Handy Hints. I went to go see Sloan with my wife. They did two sets, and it was awesome. Last time I saw them, it was when they were opening for the Foo Fighters. I bought tickets, uh, took my wife to see Foo Fighters, and hey, Sloan was opening. Also opening that time, in fact, were the Constantines. It, It was a stadium show, though, and not the greatest. It really wasn't that great. But it was cool that the Foo Fighters did what they usually do is they they picked up some Canadian bands for their shows in Canada. Right. So they picked up Constantine's and Sloan like Foo Fighters uh, have picked up like they got like Doughboys to do a reunion for them, like in in one of their concerts out east. Right. And while I'm on Constantine's, by the way, hit pause on this episode and go listen to the Constantine's album, Shine a Light, and then come right back. So back to the show. The show was amazing, and uh, I'm glad to hear you're going to go see them. You, you're you just going to love it, man, especially because it's a club show. Yeah. They just, uh, they really do a great job there. Patrick looked like a mad scientist. Jay was so subdued and just oozing pure rock vibes. He always doesn't move. Does. He always yeah, does. <laughs> yeah, he, he doesn't move around much, but when he does, it looks like he should be wearing like tipsy gypsy scarves too, yeah. right? Yeah. Just so killer. Andrew. Uh, the drummer, he was wearing, this is for you, Brant, he was wearing a bullet belt and a Witchfinder General shirt. Wicked. Yeah, yeah, that's for you, man. I saw that and I'm like, oh, I got to tell Brant. And then Chris, of course, was playing that now iconic red Fender Mustang bass with the competition stripes. It's just just so Canadian. Their playing was impeccable with uh, a great mix of the hits and some deep cuts all four members are amazing songwriters, players, and writers, now for over 30 years. They were they were originally lumped in with kind of grunge and part of that Halifax pop explosion, but after their first album from 92, Smeared, which was, it had some grungy overtones, but kind of shoegaze too, yep. they really showed after that with their, with their next ra- album and subsequent albums that they're just an insane indie pop rock band with killer hooks amazing songwriting sometimes noisy too but just at their core an amazing pop band and it just baffles me after seeing them live and how well they can play how well they can sing together too like the harmonies were insane um they have they have like a uh, a touring member a fifth member who does a lot of the backing vocals but it's just insane right yeah. um it just baffles me that the tragically hip are more revered in canada
1: than sloan like it's not even close for me right yeah, but the Sloan's more revered outside of Canada than the Tragically Hip were, for sure. True, true. And
0: and here's how you know, though, that Sloan have been at it for for more than 30 years. So I'm at this show on a Thursday night with my wife. It's two sets, and the first set starts at 8. We're waiting in line, and it was clear that everyone in the crowd is going to be like way over 30 to 35 years of age, like yeah. way over. Over half of the people... In waiting in line we all have paper printouts of, of our tickets either we don't trust or know how to use qr codes i don't know but you could hear the ticket taker person going oh and here's another paper ticket you know like that's that's our era right yeah. and then when inside the venue you can hear like All the banter at the tables, like almost all of it was about parent-teacher interviews (laughs) and stuff like that, right? And, of course, you know, they're doing two sets and one's an early one, so it's just perfect. And also, I mean, the Canadiana factor at this show was off the charts because, of course, you probably saw this, Dave Foley from the Kids in the Hall was there because he's in town filming Fargo. Um, so we chatted him up a bit, because why? Because it's Canada. Yeah. So you just go up to Dave Foley, because there's a Kids in the Hall there. Um, he actually got up on stage at the end for the encore to sing Sloan's hit from 1992, Underwhelmed. And when, they, when Dave Foley from the Kids in the Hall is up there singing Underwhelmed with Sloan, my my maple syrup-filled heart grew three sizes. It was just, it was insane. It was basically a Canadian heritage moment. And I actually heard that Canada Post is going to make a stamp of it. So, yeah. So, but anyway, what are my handy hints, though? What are my handy hints? Sloan Edition. That's what this segment is about, isn't it? So when I got there, I checked out the merch table, of course. I was going to ask how much money I need to bring with me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, $20 less anyways, because that's what I spent. Well, I spent a little bit more. Here's the thing. I checked out their merch table, and they had a copy of their Hit and Run EP on vinyl. That was originally released in 2009, digital only, but it was released on a physical copy in 2018, and it was gone instantly, and it's impossible to find. I looked this morning on Discogs. There's one for sale for $205 Canadian, plus shipping, of course. There's one on eBay for $274 U.S. OBO, plus shipping, of course. This one was for sale for 20 bucks, so score, right? Yeah. Obviously. But when I'm looking, I'm like, okay, well, there's only 4 left. And I don't want to hold it during the whole show. And I took an Uber there, and even if I did drive, it's minus 20 Celsius outside, but I don't want to risk like not getting it, you know? So what do you do when you're at a show and you want to buy some merch and you risk not getting it if you wait until the end? Hmm. He- here is your handy hint number one. You use Ryan's record check. So you slip the coat check person some dough to hold your merch, just like they'd hold your jacket. Mm-hmm. So, so you go, you do the record check thing. Now I could have bought, I could have bought like all the other copies of this and like sold them but that would be a super scumbag move and and it was i went and checked in between sets and they were all gone yeah they were they were all gone i think people knew that that was a hard to find one now it's handy hints though plural what do you think my second handy hint is when you've just bought a sloan record that goes for over 200 bucks for 20 bucks and you slip the coat check person five dollars for ryan's record check to hold it You've essentially made two hundred dollars, haven't you? Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. so.
0: Yeah, so my handy hint number two is, you've got two hundred dollars to spend on more records.
1: Right. Yeah, and there you have it, man. Even though you're not going to sell that record, right? Of course not.
0: Of course, no. I'm going to keep that. But I've made, I like, had I bought it on Discogs or eBay, it would have cost me way over two hundred dollars. I ended up paying twenty. I've made two hundred dollars. There you go, man. And there is, you know, a first edition of Ryan's Handy Hints. What do you think? I love this. I love the theme song, man. That's all you like? (laughs) I'll try to think up some more episodes for you, or I'll try to think up some more editions, anyways, of Ryan's Handy Hints for you, buddy. Sure, thanks. Anyways, enjoy the Sloan concert. It's gonna be amazing. Well, I for sure will
1: now. Very handy. I like to think so. Yeah. All right, let's get into this Pell-Mell record. History lesson, part one. All right, so we've had Pell-Mell-related releases
0: on the show three times, I think, by my count. We had the uh, SST-102 no-age comp, so all the way back to episode 102. We had uh, our first Pell-Mell release, The Bumper Crop. SST 158 with Bob Bierman, and then the episode right after, we had Steve Fisk on SST 159 for the 448 Deathless Days episode. And here we are, SST 241 for their, you know, the earliest release that we'll cover on the show in perfect SST fashion.
1: Yeah. So we cover the history of the band off pretty well with Bob and, and if memory serves, we, we do touch on it with Steve Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get into it a bit here with, with Bill Owen also. So I won't go too deep into the history. Like you mentioned, this is a reissue of the band's first EP, Rhyming Guitars, which was self-released by the band on their own Indoor Records in 1981. pell was an instrumental rock band that formed in Portland, Oregon in 1980. The original members were Arnie May on guitar, John Lars Sorensen on bass, Bill Owen on guitar, and Bob Bierman on drums. This is the lineup that recorded the Rhyming Guitars EP. There's a great piece on Pell-Mell by Dave Lang on the Perfect Sound Forever page. He says, Pell-Mell took the twang of Dwayne Eddy and The Ventures and mixed it up with a jagged post-punk approach and a beautiful evocative lyricism, which has a wonderfully cinematic quality. The perfectly complementary interplay between the rhythm section and the expressive guitar lines possess a sublime beauty which few others have ever matched. Just imagine Tom Verlaine and Richard Lloyd playing the Dick Dale songbook. Yeah, that's a good description. Yeah. A few of the other names connected to the band that will come up in the interview are Bruce Pavitt, uh, who, who used his nascent sub-pop connections to help the band book their first co- cross-country tour in 1982.
0: Yeah, I was just listening to the Steve Fisk interview from episode 159. And when Steve is introducing Bruce Pavitt. I just loved how, you know, we, we often talk about our listeners. Yep. When Steve is on as a guest, he's he's talking, you know, I don't know if our listeners know who Bruce Pavitt is.
1: It's like he was one of the hosts of the show on that episode. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Uh, Arnie Mae left the band just before the EP was released. And if you actually look on the credits on the back of the original LP, he's almost credited as as like a special guest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Following that tour and a live cassette, they asked Steve Fist to join the band and move to San Francisco. John Lars left and Greg Freeman joined on bass. They also met Ray Farrell. Who was then working for Rough Trade US and by 1985, SST? He started managing Pell Mell and booking shows for them around the Bay Area, eventually bringing them to the attention of Greg Ginn for 1987's Bumper Crop. The, the band had essentially split up by the time Bumper Crop came out. The album was made up of studio and live recordings circa 83 to 85. You'll hear a brief mention of the follow-up album, Flow, which we'll be seeing on episode 278, uh, and where they added second guitarist Dave Spaulding. There are also the two post-Flow albums, but we'll probably get into those a little bit um, you know, more when we get to that episode 278. Mm. Or maybe on episode 913, Ryan, the Bring on the China 7-inch.
0: That's right, man. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I think that might be Brant's first mention of the nines. Good one. <laughs> We can't leave those on the, you know, we have to we have to talk about them when we get there. Yeah, we will. There's like four Negative Land cassettes when we get to the nines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we'll survive. Yeah. Here, Brant, I pulled uh, a few spiels out of some books too about Pell-Mell just to set the stage here. And, you know, similar type of description out of Trouser Press here, but gives a good additional kind of description in the same way that dave lang here's ira robbins from trouser press pell-mell has often been compared to such early rock instrumental figures as link ray and Dwayne Eddy. you know we hear that a million times right even though the band's shimmering keyboards and guitar sound owe little stylistic allegiance to such supposed forebears in one respect however the comparison is apt while most modern or prog rock instrumental groups favor abstract composition over articulated songwriting, pell best material, like that of Ray and Eddie, sounds like genuine songs. Songs with swing and move, songs that build, peak and fall, songs that just happen to not have lyrics or vocals. And I thought that was a good description because when you listen to the tracks, when we get to them, you know, They have a hypnotic effect because they are repetitive, but they do, they evolve. You know, when you're listening to them closely, like they are a a real song, just like Ira Robbins mentioned here. Um, Here's a spiel out of this book. I don't know if I mentioned it before. This one is called All Ages The Rise and Fall of Portland Punk Rock, 1977 to 1981, by Mark Sten. This one's out on. Reptilicus Press. Have I mentioned that one before?
1: No, but Bill mentioned it in the interview. I didn't know it existed, and I looked it up right away. You can't get a copy of that for under 100 bucks. So Yeah. That's awesome that you have that. Hopefully they repress it, because I would love to get a copy of that.
0: Yeah, I bought it when I was at Amoeba Records in San Francisco in, I don't know. It was before the pandemic. I don't know, yeah. at some point. Um, here's a spiel by by Mark, though, and I think he is really getting at the fact that he didn't appreciate how good pell were when they first came out. So check this out. He, he does uh, recover at the end. pell by contrast, and he's, he's kind of following up on other bands he described before. This is from the chapter 1980-6. pell by contrast, was a highly disciplined group with polish, drive, and no vocals at all pell two core members were Bob Bierman on drums and Bill Owen on guitar. They came from Reed College, but they didn't look it, unless they were science majors. In the fall of 1980, they momentarily joined Arnie May in the briefcases, which they quickly turned into pell by jettisoning the remaining briefcases and adding John Lars Sorensen on bass. Arnie left the next summer, and they continued as a trio. Pell-Mell was an extremely tight band from the word go, and their precision-tooled brand of white funk endeared them forever to Susan Orléans over at Willamette Week. That's uh, like a publication, Willamette Week. But without vocals, they were a novelty act with a proscribed future. I was genuinely miffed that such a powerhouse outfit saw no need for a singer, I wrote one press release that called them one of Portland's most interesting new bands since quote-unquote interesting is always a proper default adjective when you're trying to be polite. In a later release, I referred to them as an instrumental combo, frequently referred to as the Ventures of the 80s. No one was referring to them as the Ventures of the 80s. I was just urging them to get serious. And then here's where Mark kind of makes up for it. He says... And I apologize. I was out of line. They were a superb band. Yes, they were. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I think what Mark is really getting at is that a lot of people did not get them at the time. Yeah. Like people, they were ahead of their time. People didn't get it. It's like, it's it's instrumental. It's Link Ray. It's Dwayne Eddy. It's The Ventures. But it's not. So I can't pigeonhole them. So i can't I can't like them as much as I probably should,
1: yeah. well I, he he said it right. People kind of um, considered stuff like that a novelty,
0: yeah, for sure. Um, I also uh, went digging around in rock and the pop narcotic. And for all of those commenters of uh, bands that you know are instrumental, but you be we better with a singer like you and I experienced, and you mentioned that to Bill, too. Um, I think you also mentioned it to, uh, to Bob and Steve (laughs) in the interviews about, you know, the pains of being in an instro band. Um, but I thought Joe, uh, put it quite well here in rock and the pop narcotic. He's speaking about instrumental bands and he, he, uh, he lists off a ton of them, including like alternatives, blind idiot, God, and of course, pell-mell left insane universal Congress of, but then he explains, you know, and potential rationale for why you would be instrumental here's joe the rise in the number of largely or totally instrumental bands after 1985 was not a response to market demand except insofar as there was virtually none for any decent contemporary band musicians decided that they couldn't make any money anyway and it would be better to have no singer than to keep a problem child for non-existent commercial considerations. There you go.
1: There you go. (laughs) Yep, LSD, man. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ryan, way to hit the stacks there. Let's uh, throw to Bill Owen. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Bill Owen. Bill, thanks for being on the show. Sure. Okay, let's go back, Bill. Are you originally from Portland? Yes. Went to high school in Portland yes okay when did you first start playing guitar
2: Uh, when I was 16 my mom took us to the store to buy a drum set because I wanted to be a drummer in a band yep and while she was there she bought a guitar for my sister thinking she would play it and when I got home I played the guitar and didn't return to the drums that much although I still play drums once in a while
1: what kind of music were you into at that age
2: Led Zeppelin, Bad Company, you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival. I did like the Ventures, particularly the guitar, though. I always focused on a listen to the guitar a lot when I, you know, listen to music.
1: Did you have uh, a band like pre-Pell-Mel?
2: Yeah, we had a couple fleeting bands in high school. Um, I played in a band at Reed College before Bob Bierman came out and started pell with me. Uh, There was a one performance band I was in with vocals. And I sang and um, I'm almost afraid that a tape of that might exist somewhere because my singing skills were kind of marginal and maybe our playing skills weren't so rehearsed. I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> what band was that?
2: Uh, you know, I can't remember the name of it. It was with my roommate at Reed College and then there was a drummer guy there and we did a couple of rehearsals. I remember we did some Talking Heads covers, some other covers, um, and that was about it.
1: Okay, so that first wave of punk rock was already starting to hit by that point.
2: Yeah, yeah. I was in at the Talking Heads a lot. I liked David Byrne and their whole thing. And then I went to, um, you know, previously I met Bob in 1978 at the University of Oregon. And we became very good friends there. But I went to Reed College the next year. He was in Pennsylvania. And that's when I had that band. Well, he decided to move out to Portland to go to Reed College in 1980, and that's when we decided to start Pell-Mell.
1: What was Reed College like? Was it like an evergreen-type school?
2: Sort of, yeah. Um, There was that ethic, but at the same time, they had very high academic standards. Mm -hmm. And so I actually struggled there academically, and I did not finish at Reed. Mm. Uh, I dropped out and went to Berkeley in California, and in fact... Uh, that's when Pell Mel moved to the Bay Area and we started playing down there.
1: Was there like somebody booking bands at Reed?
2: Sort of, yeah. Um, for that particular show with that band, we just did it ourselves. We set up a PA and just, you know, played out in the middle of the yard in campus. Mm-hmm. But after uh, I started Pell Mel, they booked us at Reed and some of our best shows were at Reed after I had dropped out.
1: Tell me about Arnie May and John Lars Sorensen's first band, UHF, or the pre pell band, UHF. There maybe were bands before that.
2: Right. Well, UHF is a wonderful band. They were basically a free-form band in Portland and probably started in the late 70s, maybe as early as 1977. And basically what would happen with UHF is they'd arrive at the show, the musicians who were going to be in UHF at that time, and then they would invite audience members to come onto the stage. And so you could just start playing. And in fact, I played in a couple of UHF shows on guitar on one and maybe another instrument on another. And so it was pure improvisation, but it was kind of amazing what came out of that. There were some good sounds coming off the stage.
1: Hmm. I, I feel like we know this now um, in retrospect, but Portland had a very vibrant scene in a very big avant-garde scene as well portland has a fantastic scene um it's
2: kind of underrated especially during the 70s and the 80s mm-hmm. if you'd like a good recollection of that mark Sten, um, who was basically the booker of the punk bands in the early 80s late 70s wrote a book called rise and fall of portland punk 1977 to 81 hmm I would recommend purchasing that book. You will get a really good idea of what the scene was like back then and the bands that Pall mell played with.
1: What were some of those bands, like the early bands that you would have played with and where, what kind of venues would you have played?
2: The first venue that we played at was a venue called Clockwork Joe's, mm-hmm. which was, I believe, an old, you know, an old vaudeville hall. And we played there our first gig with the Rats and Sato Nation, wow. who are two... Portland punk bands Um, and so we opened for them and the show went well and so we got quite a few gigs after that it went pretty well in Portland so I met Arnie May in April of 1980 and I was going to Reed College and I was in communication with Bob Bierman and Bob by that time had pretty much committed to come out to Reed College in Portland re-enroll in college and we would get an apartment and start a band you know we didn't know what kind of band yet but we had talked about it yep. well i met arnie mainer record store because i went in and bought wires 154 album and arnie was you know checking me out behind the counter and he said i like this album too <laughs> we started talking about it and he goes "Well, why don't you come over and play some guitar for a while so i did that and uh he said you know afterwards he said well let's play again and i said well i have to go to summer school Bob Beerman's coming out in July. Why don't we call you then and we'll jam again? Mm -hmm. He said, great. So we called him in July. We had a meeting in downtown Portland. And then the first Pell-Mell rehearsal happened soon after that.
1: I wonder, did you ever come into contact with Joe Carducci at all during your time in Portland?
2: Yes. Um, I believe I met Joe in the record store once or twice. Um, And it was a fantastic record store. Uh, lots of cool stuff in there and then I sort of indirectly had contact with Joe Carducci through Ray Farrell mm. who later became our manager right. and worked for SST so Ray I think had a lot of dealings with Joe and uh, may have even had a hand in signing Pell-Mell eventually I'm not sure.
1: Fast forwarding just a little bit tell me about the 1980 tour um, that you that Pell-Mell went on. <laughs> That was a great tour. You know, I think it was before we did the
2: live cassette and Bruce Pavitt had gotten hold of us and wanted us to be on the first sub pop cassette, you know, which was fantastic. And after you meet Bruce, you realize what a competent, wonderful guy he is. And so we called him and said, Bruce, would you like to book a tour and be our manager on an American tour? Let's go play the country, let's have some fun. He immediately agreed uh, he did a wonderful job of booking these shows across the United States. The first show was in Minneapolis. We went on to play Cincinnati, Louisville, Washington D.C., and New York. Uh, it was a great tour. We drove back in three days. I had to go to college like in three days after the last show, and mm-hmm. it was kind of a whirlwind. But it was very enjoyable.
1: Do you remember any of the the bands that you played with? Any super memorable shows?
2: That's a really great question. Um, Steve Fisk has a better memory of that than I do, and he wasn't even on the tour. Um, when I listened to Steve's 448 Deathless Days interview, he remembered bands and stuff during the Pell-Mell era that I had kind of forgotten about. Bob Bierman or Bruce Pavitt might remember those bands a little bit better. Um, I know we played with some good bands, yeah. uh, but their names escape me right now. Sorry.
1: I guess I'm just wondering what kinds of bands you played with. I mean, 1982 is, you know, that's, hardcore is going full tilt at that point.
2: Right. I mean, some of them were, there was a band in Boston that was more like, not a folk band, but they were a strummy kind of electric band, not unlike the Birds. Bob Bierman would know the name of them. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple other, you know, maybe arty bands or noisy bands, and there were a few punk bands so, but I think people generally got the idea that we, we were a bit more arty and not just hardcore punk. So they, they put something unusual on the bill. It wasn't, I don't remember it being terrible or anything like that.
1: Uh, the Rhyming Guitars record, did people have it? People
2: had it. Yes, they did. And we actually you know, got asked for autographs and stuff. It wasn't super well distributed, but it was okay. Yeah, and with Bruce Pavitt, we had met Ray Farrell at Rough Trade Records. By that time, he actually was distributing for us at Rough Trade, and we weren't a huge band, but Bray did get the the record out across the country to some extent.
1: Yeah, Indoor Records was that was Pell Mell's label.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, I feel like, you know, there was a market, a, a small one, but a market for that kind of stuff because people were just hungry for it, and there there wasn't a lot out there.
2: You know, the the door is still wide open. You know, I love what Pell-Mell tried to do. We tried to be this kind of multivariate instrumental band. And I, I like the stuff that we got on record. I still think there's a lot of possibility in the music that we put down. You know, I create music at home. Maybe someday we'll record another record. I don't know. But I like what we did and people were really open to it. And I think they got it. I wish we had recorded ourselves more live. Mm-hmm. Because I think that might have been a better statement. When we got into the studio, we tended to kind of clam up a little bit. Right. Um, so that's that's why the response to the live cassette that we recorded is pretty pretty good because the sound quality is decent and the performance is is very much
1: there. Hmm. Uh, you mentioned Steve Fisk. How did you first come into contact with Steve?
2: Um, I met Steve in April of 1981. So we had been together about nine months and. He came down to play at Clockwork Joe's with John Foster's Pop Philosophers, who were still in Olympia, I believe. And uh, Steve played with them. Uh, We met him after the show. You know, he's a real nice guy. We talked about this. We met John. And then when we went to do the live cassette, Steve was a logical choice to produce that cassette to master it for us. And so we did that in Olympia. And soon after that, we chose to move to the Bay Area, and we asked Steve to join at that time.
1: So you were going to move to, to Berkeley anyways to go to schools, so the rest of the band yes. followed? Is that kind of how that happened? Yes. And by the time Bumper Crop came out on SST, pell not wasn't, wasn't really a band anymore.
2: Right. We had kind of disbanded. We lived in different cities, but when the Bumper Crop came out, it kind of re-energized us in the sense that, wow, you know, we got a record out. This is cool. And we decided to start planning for Flow because SST was open you know, to us to recording a record and Ray Farrell was involved in everything. So that went smoothly. And the thing I have to say about Flow is that uh, Greg Freeman owned the recording studio in San Francisco that we recorded that at. So we we were very comfortable there. Greg, of course, being the bass player in Pell Mell at the time. Right. We were very comfortable there and Greg did a great job of getting the sound for Flo and Steve who was there. So the production on that record is pretty good. It's a nice live hot sound with, you know, fairly high production studio qualities.
1: So what would the status of Palmel been in nineteen eighty nine when SST reissued rhyming guitars? Were you an active band?
2: You know that's a good question because we had to get together to remix rhyming guitars in Portland, which we did, so maybe we were getting together in eighty nine before flow got recorded that That's possible mm-hmm. and I remember Steve was heavily involved in that, and we recorded at a studio in Portland called Pace recording and a guy I went to high school with was part of the studio there. His name is drew Canyolette. yeah. He was a year older than me, so I didn't know him as well. But they did a good job of remixing that record, and I'm pretty pleased with how the Rhyming Guitars reissue came out.
1: Mm-hmm. What was Arnie's status in the band? Was it did he quit the band because of the tour? Like he just realized it wasn't cut out for for him, or was it the move to Berkeley that that scared him off?
2: Um, you know, about nine months into it or so, Arnie wanted to add vocals to the band. Mm. And I think he thought that would be a much more commercially viable option, which it might've been, but Bob and I were pretty happy with the instrumental sound we had. And so it was an amicable departure. Arnie left Pell-Mell sometime in 81 and started a band called Film at 11, Mm -hmm. which are a very good band. There's video of them on YouTube. I like Film at 11. Uh, But uh, yeah, we just went on as Pell-Mell and that's when we became a three piece for a while.
1: I used to play in an instrumental band and uh it was a surf band so uh, we would get a lot of comments like you know you guys are awesome but you'd be better if you had a vocalist.
2: Right. Yeah, that happened a lot <laughs> and um you know I'm I'm pretty pretty happy with Pommel's instrumental sound. I was re-listening to Pet Dub and some of the stuff on Bumper Crop just incredible performances, especially mm-hmm. Pet Dub. I think that's one of our best songs. There's so much energy and life in our recording so I wouldn't change a thing, but I'm very impressed that you were in a surf band, Brant. Can you tell me a little more about this?
1: Yeah, we were called the Heat Scores. You can find us on Bandcamp. This was, okay. you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> okay.
2: Were you guys kind of noisy and jangly like Pell-Mell? Or? No,
1: we were more like a, a punk rock surf band.
2: Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. What's the name again? I've, I've got a
1: The Heat Scores. The Heat Scores. I'll send you a link to our Bandcamp. Okay, please. Yeah. What about John Lars? What was his status? Why, how did he end up leaving the band?
2: So John was Arnie's friend and he was the b- first bass player in Pell-Mell. So after that initial, uh, rehearsal and, and playing with Arnie and stuff, uh, Arnie invited John to be our bass player cause we needed a bass player. And our, uh, John is a great bass player, great guy. He had to leave for family reasons for a while. So my high school friend named Mike Shank filled in for a while. And then when Arnie came back, uh, we were a three piece and that's when we recorded the live cassette and John's performance on that is pretty phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So John's a really nice guy. We're all still friends. I just talked to John not too long ago. He's a fantastic guy who works for the state of Washington now, and uh, he's an avid bass collector and and all this cool stuff. So
1: Mm -hmm. what was the dynamic like for you playing like being a two guitar band going down to a one guitar band?
2: You know, that's interesting. Playing with Arnie was a lot of fun. It was easy because we were all on the same page. When we went to three-piece, it was easy because we played a lot. I obviously had to expand my range a little bit because I had to be the melody and the rhythm and everything. But, you know, always been easy and pell-mell. I just enjoyed playing with the band. And uh, later on, when Dave Spaulding joined, it was the same thing. I wasn't as involved in Interstate. But, you know, I like uh, interstate and star city and the the stuff they did after I left.
1: Uh, you met Greg Freeman when you moved to Berkeley?
2: Yeah, that was a lot of fun meeting Greg. Um, John Lars, we moved to Berkeley. John Lars came down with us, but he had a lot of connections in the Northwest and it was uncertain what we would be doing in, in San Francisco, you know? So he kind of wanted to go back to the Northwest. So it was an amicable split. And at that time, we had to get another bass player. So we were in the Rough Trade record store one day, and I put up a three by five card asking for a bass player for Pell-Mell. Well, the next day, Greg Freeman called. We had a meeting and we had a rehearsal not too long after that, and he was in the band really quickly.
1: I'm assuming he was aware of the band already.
2: Yes, yeah. yes, he liked Pell-Mell, and when he called me, he was like, I'm a big fan of yours, and I really enjoy what you do.
1: The recording of Rhyming Guitars, the original recording at Triangle, uh, recording in Seattle, the engineers Bill Stuber and Jack Weaver, I'm assuming they were like the, the owners slash house right. engineers?
2: Yeah, and it, it was a really cool experience. It was the first time I had been in a recording studio. I think Bob Bierman had probably been in a recording studio before. Bob knew about being in a band more than I did because he had been in a band before, so he knew some of the material details about doing that and so on. But when we got into the recording studio, it was pretty comfortable. Uh, Jack Weaver was a nice guy, kind of set us up. They understood what we wanted to do, so they got this kind of nice echoey, shimmery rhyming guitar sounds that we wanted. You know, some of the performances I wish we might redo, you know, it's easy to look back and say perfectionism, but my guitar is a little out of tune on Rhyming Guitars here and there, and some of the, and some of the other performances got a couple of rough edges. But generally speaking, I think we got down what we wanted to get down there. I'm pretty happy with Rhyming Guitars.
1: Yeah, I noticed I noticed the the guitar being out of tune a little bit actually, but I I kind of thought maybe that was intentional. I I I don't mind the sound of it to be honest with you. It
2: kind of fits the song a little bit because there's an Asian influence and, you know, melodically Pell-Mell was, was challenging. So maybe it does fit in. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, it does for me. So (laughs) yeah, I can understand being on your side of it though and, and having something like that irk you for sure. Yeah. Do you remember how long you would have been in the studio to record this? Wow.
2: That's a really good question. Three to four days is my memory. It could be five or six, but I think it was fairly quick.
1: Was there more recorded than the four songs on rhyming guitars?
2: Yeah, there's two outtakes. One of them's called Alligator Stomp, and the other one's called My Three Sons.
1: Mm. They've been released. Yeah, Yeah. they have.
2: So you've heard them. That's good.
1: Yeah, Yeah, they're on the CD version, I believe, of uh, Bumper Crop, now that you mention it. Right. Okay, let's talk about these tracks then. Uh, New Saigon, that's the one where... Your your guitars out of tune. So I, I was gonna ask which guitar was you. So now I know.
2: <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. What kind of gear were you using personally, guitar and amp? I had a
2: a Moserite guitar. That you know, the rhyming guitars was recorded with a Moserite guitar, and that was a happy accident. There was a guy at Reed College selling a guitar, and it had so much dust on it you couldn't really tell what it was. Hmm. But it he was only charging seventy five dollars for it, <laughs> so I bought it.
1: Worth a lot more now.
2: (laughs) Yeah. When we wiped the dust off, it was this shiny Moserite guitar with this cool whammy bar, which fit in with what we were doing at the time. And so that was, you know, that was what was used on on, uh, rhyming guitars. Artie played a Baldwin Baby Bison, which is an English brand guitar, I think primarily in the 60s and 70s. and that had a nice distorted uh, sound to it when you when you overdrive it. So that was like, for example, on Spy vs Spy, that's the sound that Arnie's doing an overdriven uh, baby bison guitar.
1: Mm-hmm. Something like this. Would you have written this as a group, or what was the writing process? That's a good question.
2: Um, uh, rhyming guitars. Uh, the first track for that was New Psychon, and that was written in our apartment when Bob and I were going to Reed College. I came up with the initial riff on an acoustic guitar, that do 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 do, you know, main riff. Yeah. And Bob added the bass line. And then we had those minor sevenths on the higher part, the middle part. And that song came together rather quickly. We, you know, rehearsed it in the studio. I mean, the rehearsal space. And that was one of the first songs that we we wrote, maybe the second or third song that we wrote.
1: Hmm. It's definitely got a, has a structure to it. Would it, be more or less played this w- the same way live, or, or did you improvise?
2: No, it was played pretty much the same way live.
1: The full eight minutes long.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, it was long. Uh, we weren't afraid of playing long songs mm-hmm. back then. You know, part of our instru- uh, our inspiration was from Public Image.
1: I was gonna gonna say, yep
2: so you know i remember at the first rehearsal we were you know talking about what we were going to do and everybody just said well let's just sound like public image because you can turn your amp up and play anything and so that's what we did so the long song was part of the mix back then as time progressed they got shorter and a bit more traditional maybe in structure but uh public image is definitely an influence at that point
1: it comes through for sure uh, the kind of dub style mix that you can hear a little bit of on New Saigon, was that in the original or was that something you did at pace?
2: Um, that's more at pace, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an echoey, you know, maybe hinting at dub style on the original, but I think the EP would probably be uh, more on that with Steve Fisk and those other guys kind of working on it. That's probably what happened there.
1: You mentioned Spy versus Spy. Little surfier this one. Were you aware of like you know, some of the surf bands of that era, like Insect Surfers or John and the Night Riders or even a bit later Lawndale?
2: We weren't as influenced by contemporary surf bands. We liked The Ventures and Dwayne Eddy. Yep. And you know, and if you've heard Dwayne Eddy stuff, it's pretty pretty traditional, but there's a sense of humor to it. And so we, we like that kind of thing. Um, you know, the surf thing is almost an accident as well i mean the way i play guitar sort of comes out like nokie edwards from the ventures it's not really by design it's just kind of how i play yeah Uh, there's definitely other ways to play the guitar and i do that to some extent but i've always been a bit of a surf sounding guy
1: yeah i mean you're not a surf band but that element is in there for sure
2: yeah, and, and, you know, being an experimental surf band, that that was a phrase we could use then. And, you know, being a surf band, that's going to be interesting and kind of expand on the thing and make it a little, a little more interesting down the line. And, yeah, I think that's fair.
1: Yeah. Did you ever get billed with other surf, with, like, more traditional surf bands?
2: Um, there weren't that many around. Yeah. So I think the answer to that question is no, simply because they weren't around if we had traveled more across the country, that's a possibility, but we didn't really, uh, we didn't really play with other surf bands or, or oftentimes even bands that sounded like us really.
1: Mm -hmm. What can you tell me about this song? Spy versus spy.
2: Artie came up with that one. Uh, that initial kind of loud riff at the beginning, he came up with that and then him and Bob, I think worked out the arrangement and so on. I added the surfy thing that you hear at the, at the bottom there, uh, that, it's a surf theme type thing. Uh, You know, it, that song is fun. I really like it. Um, I like the surf element. I like how aggressive it is. It's kind of scary on one level. It's a very aggressive song, but I like what we did there and Arnie's particular brand of guitar playing comes through. He had a very aggressive, in some ways, very scary way of playing the guitar. And if you listen to new Saigon, his guitar hits, at a certain point are kind of epic and big in that song so his loud guitar playing was sort of a counterpoint to what i was doing which was more melodic mm-hmm. and lighter so you can sort of hear it in spy versus spy a little bit
1: yeah that's kind of what i mean about going from a two guitar band to a one guitar band you guys definitely played off of each other i would say
2: right yeah and you know you could make the argument that pell-mell better with two guitars but the live cassette that we did is pretty good i do like that recording Mm-hmm. Um, when Greg and Steve joined the band, the songs developed because Greg, very accomplished bass player, and Steve, of course, added marvelous things. So the songs developed, and so the one guitar wasn't standing out alone as much. Mm-hmm. But when we got to "Flow," Dave Spalding was in the band, and that's a two guitar record, and that's a pretty good record as well.
1: Okay, on to side two of the EP, Paravion. Oh, Paravion. Paravion. What's what is that?
2: um arnie wrote that uh melody and arnie was capable of nice melodies he wasn't just a smash guitar player so arnie's a very accomplished guitar player bob bierman wrote the bass line for that which is a really wonderful counterpoint to what arnie's playing always admired that bass line so that's a wonderful kind of lyrical song par avion means by air in french and so we thought it had this kind of uh airy quality so we named it par avion was very popular live and we recorded it pretty much exactly how we played it live
1: that one uh, especially on the guitar tone has a definite pill vibe
2: too. right yeah exactly and I, I i really like that you know you sort of get pill with a little pop in there and I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that song
1: yeah yeah and then red rhythm just like another one of those kind of deep grooves
2: yeah yeah bob bierman actually wrote most of that i remember you know, he said, Let's write this type of a song, and he showed me that riff and he wrote the bass line. So that's pretty much of a Bob Beerman composition. It's a great song, it's another long one. The guitars are real jangly and cool, and, and I like what we did on that song.
1: Mm-hmm. The guitars being panned the way they, they are hard right and hard left interesting decision. Like, I like it. That's what we always did in my bands, two guitar band, you know.
2: Yeah, you know, just to add some variety and screw with the listener's head a little bit. Uh, so you had the lead and you had the smash guitar. and Just mix around with the sound a little bit.
1: Yep. Uh, and then the, the SST only track, Week of Corn." I'm assuming Steve right. put this together at, at pace?
2: You know, I think Steve did that at home. He might have done it at pace, I'm not sure. But in any case, it's a great composition and I like what he did with it. I think he did it alone. I don't remember working on it, so I think that's entirely a Steve Fisk thing. I I think it's a great song. Um, I listened to it again yesterday, and what he did with that song was he kind of made it more of a traditional song, in a way, song structure, but then he added his tape loops and so on to make it interesting in another way, so I, I like what he did on that song.
1: You don't have any idea where he got those samples from?
2: Steve had a million samples bouncing around. And one of the things we talk about in the van is where he got his samples. You know, he'd say, I got it from this radio program. I got it from that TV show. So uh, those samples, probably just what he had in his catalog, he kept a lot of them on tape back then, which is how you kept samples. Right. And Steve was really wonderful that way. Uh, Steve was a home recording guy before home recording was cool. So he had a lot of samples hanging around in his studio i remember one time walking into his apartment in san francisco and he was working on a track for 448 deathless days and he had a loop going all the way around his apartment <laughs> so 400 square foot apartment corner to corner he had four mic stands set up and this piece of tape is looping around the entire apartment <laughs> and i laid some guitar down on that so it's a very long tape loop and it's a very good song
1: the cover art for the original and then which was repurposed for the for the re-release uh, cover by Thom Bissett. Do you have any idea who that is?
2: Right. Yeah. Tom Bissett was a graphic artist in Seattle to help us put that together. I have to admit, possibly a bit of a copyright infringement here. I'm not sure where we originally got that cover was There's there was a restaurant in Portland called the Hunan Restaurant.
1: Yeah, that's what and, I assumed. Uh, <laughs> it's in the liners. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and that's where we first discovered northern, you know, Chinese cuisine uh, or is it southern? Anyway, that spicy Chinese cuisine had this beautiful paper cut on the wall. It it was huge. And it was the rhyming guitar covers. That's that was their paper cut. Hmm. Um, So we wanted to use that for the cover. And we simply told them, hey, we want to come in one day and take a photograph of it and use it on the album cover. And they said, "Okay." And so we had a photographer come in and take that photograph. Who that artwork was by, it, you know, if it was someone from America or China, I'm not sure. And so we might run into a copyright thing down the road. I'm not
1: sure. So at some point between Rhyming Guitars uh, being reissued and, and Flow coming out, the bands back together, um, were you playing shows just locally around San Francisco or did you tour at all during that era?
2: Uh, No, actually, our last show, live show, was played, you know, sometime in San Francisco with that original iteration of Greg Freeman and Steve Fisk, Bill Owen, and Bob Bierman. Mm. So, you know, it might have been at the On Broadway or the Mabue Gardens, one of those clubs in San Francisco. But after I moved to New York and Bob Bierman moved to Boston or or wherever we scattered to, there actually were no more live performances of Pell-Mell we got together for the remix for rhyming guitars we got together and did flow but we didn't play any live shows out or anything during the recording of flow
1: yeah i'm remembering now the the band was scattered already by the time even by the time bumper crop came out I be, uh, on sst i mean right yeah remind me again how you how you put flow together was it through the mail Now we would just send files (laughs) over the internet. Yeah,
2: I mean, yeah, right. You know, And again, this is the old-fashioned way of doing it. We sent cassette cassette tapes through the mail. And I believe Bob Bierman was living in Boston. I was living in San Francisco. um, And Dave Spaulding was in there somewhere, Greg Freeman, Steve Fisk. So we mailed tapes. And by the time we got to the recording studio in San Francisco, we had about five to six songs that we wanted to play. Bob and Dave Spaulding to worked out a couple songs. I had a couple songs worked out. Uh, one of the songs on flow that I'm proudest of is a song called Flood. And that was written by me and Dave Spaulding in his apartment in San Francisco, s- back before we broke up.
1: Mm.
2: So uh, kind of a long history of that song. But when we got into the recording studio with that, it really came together with Bob's drumming, Greg's bass playing and Steve's additions production-wise and sound-wise. It's a very cool song. It's a long song, but Flood is kind of a complicated epic. It's kind of a good Pell-Mell song.
1: So you basically got back together in the studio to record "Flow," and then went your separate ways again.
2: Right. We flew back to our cities, did not play live, and then when we got together for Interstate, Bob Beerman and uh, Dave Spaulding were primarily writing the songs. I wasn't as interested in where the band was going at that point. So, my influence on Interstate is kind of low key. Um, I'm not even sure if I'm on Interstate. They might have turned down my parts or whatever. Doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But I like the album. And after that, we kind of went our separate ways. I think they played live after that. I've seen a couple of things online where they played live, maybe in LA or a couple of times before they made Star City and so on.
1: What about this short lived project you had with Steve, Duck Hunt?
2: Yeah, well, Steve is a very hospitable guy, uh, if you've ever met Steve, and so he had me up to his apartment several times in Seattle, and we recorded a bunch of stuff, both for his records, and we did do Duck Hunt. We thought Duck Hunt was funny because it was a video game at that time. Right. This flip side of another more famous video game that I can't remember the name of it, but you can look Duck Hunt up online and it's a Dumb video game, but anyway, so we decided to name our band that recorded two songs One of which I think you can find online. I don't think I can find the other one online, but uh, one of them involved the orange bird which was Anita Bryant's Representation through Disney to propagate bad stuff, you know anti-gay stuff and Mm -hmm. Steve Was always fighting against that, you know fighting for gay rights everyone's rights, and so we did Uh, Something with the Orange Bird, I remember. I don't know if I can find that track online. But another song we did uh, was okay with some guitar on it and Steve's stuff. It didn't sell particularly well. Calvin Johnson from K Records put it out as a single. I don't think it sold really well, but we were pretty happy with it.
1: Mm -hmm. What else did you do musically uh, post-Pelmell? Not
2: a whole lot, you know, um, for a while I was using a four track cassette recorder and just recording stuff on my own. But in the last five years, I did get Logic Pro, uh, you know, Apple Corporation's home recording suite and some speakers and some plugins and stuff. So I I do have a home recording studio and I am recording some stuff at home. So I do have a bunch of recordings. I, I toy with the idea of doing a solo album one day and that could happen maybe.
1: Do you know anything about the status of the pell back catalog, particularly the, the SST stuff?
2: I don't really know. Um, that, you know, is what it is. We signed the contract with them and, and how it goes, I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, I will say that SST deserves a lot of credit for putting out all those bands, including us. You know, a lot of those bands wouldn't have seen the light of day. And you guys are doing a lot to, you know, uplift all that and shed light on SST. So I thank you for that. Oh, thanks. I choose to let other people sort of deal with the SST thing. I'm not mad at them or anything. It's just, it is what it is. Our our records got out. We really wanted that to happen. They put out a couple of good records with us. So I thank them for that. Whatever else happens is just going to be what happens, I guess.
1: Yeah. I just mean like... You know, it would be great if if people could hear those records again in some way.
2: Right. Well, by back catalog, you mean the Pell-Mell records like Bumper Crop? Yeah. uh, If they have them and they want to reissue them, I guess that's what could happen. I mean, that would be fine.
1: Right on. Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it.
2: Sure. And say hi to Ryan and everybody for me. And I appreciate what you guys are doing. You're making the world a better place. You're shedding light on SST. Those bands deserve to be heard. And because of you guys, I've listened to a few bands from SST and I've liked what I've heard. You know, there's a lot of cool stuff on there and a variety of stuff. You know, they they did go through a wide range of music and they had an open mind uh, as far as, you know, that goes. So, you know, I'm pretty happy with SST's catalog and I do appreciate what you guys are
1: doing. Oh, thanks a lot, Bill. I really appreciate that. That's really nice of you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Take care.
2: Okay, Bran, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Awesome. So cool to
0: have Bill on for such a very, very cool record. I uh I hope people take the time to seek this one out. You can get it. Like it's it's available. Yeah. Um and it's a great record. This one I I could see this like an expanded edition re-release with a bunch of bonus cuts if they're out there, you know. And I'm sure there are. There it sounds like there's some live
1: tape at least, right? Yeah. His story Ryan about he and Arnie May meeting because they were both buying a wire record. Yeah. Like how many bands started because of that scenario playing out? Like arguably even our band started because of that, that scenario. Yep. You for know? sure. The record store, yeah. right? Like the record store that, you know, that weird band that I didn't think anyone else even knew existed, you know? Yeah. You see someone flipping through the bins. They're looking at it the same as you, or they've got the shirt on, or someone's playing it over the store speakers and the rest is history. Yeah. Like it, I don't, I don't think it's a stretch to say were it not for the band Pigment Vehicle and me wearing one of their shirts, you and I wouldn't be doing this podcast right now. probably never <laughs> would have became friends. You know.
0: Yeah, I guess. I guess, yeah.
1: Uh, one of the bands they've played with on that 1982 tour was for sure Mission of Burma. They opened up for them. Mm-hmm. Perfect fit. Yeah. That Duck Hunt 7-inch from 1991, the one-off project that Steve Fisk and Bill Bill had... Uh, do yourself a favor and type Duck Hunt Vacation into your YouTube search bar and then just strap in for a wild ride. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, but both, both musically and visually, it's really something else. Let's get into this record, Ryan. History lesson, part two. Hey, Brent,
0: uh, since at this point it's going to be very, very infrequent for us to have any uh, Michael Whitaker spaceman spiels, I'm going to try and find some stuff from the Mojack stacks to kind of kick off history lesson two, if I can here. Sure. Okay. So this is out of the sub pop USA book, the collection uh, put out by Bruce Pavitt, basically the subterranean pop music anthology, 80 to 88. I mentioned this on prior pell-mell episodes, but here's a couple of mentions about this rhyming guitars record. I alluded to these, in prior episodes, but these are actually different spiels, okay? yeah Here's an ad from sub pop number three. Okay. This is an advertisement for Pellmel, a modern dance band from Portland. If you'd like them to play for you, call Bob. Pellmel will be releasing two songs on the upcoming Trap Sampler LP. Um, and of course that's Greg Sage's label. We've mentioned that before. These songs are called Red Rhythm and Catwalk. This summer. Pellmel will release a 12-inch 45 featuring "New Saigon" plus two other songs. This record will also be on Trap Records. Pellmel is a good band, and you should listen to them. Hmm. Trap oh. Records, eh? Yeah, I, th- I think we mentioned in a prior episode that this was potentially going to be out on uh, Trap, and then that didn't end up happening. So they put it out on their own label. Here's another spiel. This is from Sub Pop number five. Pellmel, Spy Versus Spy. Ventures of the Northwest. Spy is a blistering instrumental and will appear on Pall upcoming 12-inch EP, along with their seven-minute hypno-surf masterpiece, New Saigon. They recently lost a guitar player and replaced him with a machine. (laughs) Expect big changes,
1: right Bob Bierman? There you go. Alright, so this was recorded at Triangle Recording, Seattle, 1981, by Bill Stuber and Jack Weaver. Lots of early Northwest indie bands used Triangle, Pure Joy, Fastbacks, Visible Targets, Mr. Epp, Three Swimmers, Napalm Beach. It ran from around 78 to 86 as Triangle, and then it was sold to Chris Hanzek, uh, Tina Cassell, and Jack Andino, and renamed Reciprocal, where (laughs) where an insane amount of classic records were made from 86 to 91.
0: Yep.
1: Uh, the original version of this was released on 12-inch EP on the band's own Indoor Records in 1981. There were two pressings. Uh, I think the first one had a red label, and the second had white labels and a bit of a glossier cover. The SST version has the, the one bonus track, uh, and it came out on CD, LP, and cassette. It has one song that was not on the original, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. It, it actually came out in 1990, the reissue, uh, which I think this might be our first release from 1990. So we're, we're gonna start seeing more of that. We've, we've still got more 1989 releases to come, but the 1990 mm. releases are gonna start trickling in. So just to give you some perspective, and, and these are rough numbers, Ryan. Uh, we know the big year was 1987, with somewhere around 90 releases, give or take. Oh, wow. 88 had something like 37 releases, so a pretty sharp drop-off in 88. 89 had roughly 40 or so. Um, And starting in 1990, things started to get kind of dicey. Like, we're going to start seeing tons of blank catalog numbers, Mm -hmm. lots of comps, reissues, Greg Ginn vanity projects. That's not to suggest there's not amazing stuff still to come, because there is. I'm just pointing out that we're lurching towards 1990, and... (laughs) (laughs) If If nothing else, it's gonna start getting real interesting.
0: Yeah. well, I did a bit of a count myself too, and I think we've got approximately one hundred and forty episodes to go. Yeah. ish. Like it depends on how you count, right? Like are we gonna do blank catalog episodes? I know you can't figure that out yet. and <laughs> and uh, or are we gonna skip them or whatever, but it's about one hundred and forty. I was actually pumped when I when I did that math because I'm like, okay, we've got about five years left, and you know what that means, right? What? Five years until our sweet, you know, wind up road
1: trip, man. And right. the Econoline
0: van down to California.
1: Give me it, a break. It means five years from now, I'll finally have time to read my next 20 book book spiel <laughs> from like a month ago. <laughs> I don't know. You seem to get through them better than I can. No, man. No. Hey, you mentioned that this is available, this record. What you mean by that is like, you can find used copies of it, both versions yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can yeah. find used copies. Like, they're not insanely priced, yeah. I guess, is, is what I was saying. Like, um, I will say I have never seen in the wild, like, a vinyl copy of it. I do have a vinyl copy of it. Um, I'm pretty sure I bought it um, online or maybe on a road trip. I only ever see, at least in
1: Canada, anyways, the CD version of this. Yeah. And it's, it's not common, but you do see it. Yeah. Well, the point I'm making is there is no digital version of it available for people who don't own it to listen to. It's mm-hmm. not up on streaming or Bandcamp. There, It is up on YouTube, I checked. Yeah. If people don't have it and they want to hear it. Also, Ryan, we should mention it was remixed at Pace Video Center, Portland, Oregon, 1988 by Drew Canulett, who we had on as a guest in on episode 231. And I believe he talks a little bit about this remix. It says, remixed by... Drew and Pellmell 1988 is what it says. Yep. Bob Beerman, Steve Fisk, Greg Freeman, Bill Owen. And all songs credited to Pell Mell. Track one side one. New Saigon. I'm probably gonna struggle to to really describe some of this stuff. It's hard to describe instrumental music. Right away, you can hear that public image influence, especially on the the deep groove of the bass and drums. The fact that this is almost eight minutes long definitely highlights, you know, that. Uh, the interplay between the two guitars, the rhyming guitars, I guess you would call them. Mm. I really like the dub style effects that briefly come in halfway through through this song. It's not overdone, like you hear on some dubby stuff, but um, it kind of breaks up the first and second half of the song.
0: Like uh, the uh, the echo or reverb on the snare, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, here's where... Right off the hop, you hear what other people describe in their reviews and, and other commentators, you know, the, the shimmering sound of pell but then also this post-punk pill sound. Um, it's got great little distorted guitar sounds punctuating throughout that kind of sound like a sax Yeah. also. Um the, the reverb on the snare, as you mentioned, uh, I love it. There are harmonics at the end. Again, just showing how even with a long hypnotic sound, they evolve it throughout. If you're an active listener, it takes you on an amazing ride. Um, it is evolving throughout the entire sound. Even little splash cymbal touches here and there um,
1: just, just really grab you and bring you in. It's a great one. Yep. And then the second song on side one of the EP is Spy Versus Spy. This is for sure the surfiest song. Those big mm-hmm. A minor chords with Bill working the whammy bar on his right. I love that he played one, a right, and then he cited Noki Edwards as an influence. That's super cool. It is, it is. Yeah. And it's, you know, in "Nuke Saigon where there
0: are those moments where the guitar sounds out of tune, I guess like when my, my ears are conditioned in a surf song, to hear the whammy bar. So it doesn't sound out of place to me. Like I yeah. can, I can pick out those notes, but it, it fits, man. There, there's some
1: serious whammy action in surf songs. Yeah. The way he's kind of playing at times is very similar to star crunch of man or Astro also, who sometimes also played a most, right? Just the, the chords that he's using in spy versus spy and how he's playing them. Yeah,
0: I'd agree. It has a shadowy men feel to it for me as well. I just love the driving
1: riff in this tune. All right, flipping it over, Par Avion, the guitar tones on this and the effects are straight Keith Levine, public image territory. <laughs> Keith used an electroharmonic's electric mistress flanger filter pedal. <laughs> Ryan's showing me his notes where he just wrote pill, so awesome.
0: And I wrote Keith Levine. Yeah. Yeah. I had the exact same note and I'm like, that's okay that it's it's not derivative it is inspiring it's inspirational to hear someone do make those sounds in this song it's awesome
1: yeah i think that's all arnie i don't i'm not even sure bill's on this song it sounds like one guitar to me yeah maybe just lower down in the mix yeah maybe the next one is red rhythm i like how they do, do the drums kind of super low fi for the drum intro and then the band just crashes in Mm -hmm. Another deep jaw wobble style bass groove. Like, man, these guys could all really play. Bob Bierman was such a rock solid drummer too.
0: Yeah. No, it's good. I feel like, you know, this is one of those bands that deserves like a Numero box set treatment. Big time.
1: Big time. And then we've got Week of Corn. This is the SST exclusive song. Assembled by Steve Fisk, May '89. That's what it says on the in the liner notes. So Steve Fisk Facetimed me this week, which was just super surreal for me because, you know, he's just the coolest guy ever. Um, the fan in me just can't believe I get to talk to these people. You know, yeah. uh, I had hit him up to ask him about this track. Obviously, it's a it's a dub track. He compared it to what he did with Soundgarden's Fop. Mm. Uh, which was done in the same general time frame as this a little bit earlier. I think the FOP PP was done also with Drew Canulet at, at his, uh, with his dogfish mobile. Like yep. the, that's where Soundgarden recorded. Steve told me that Drew would trade his mobile for time at pace, uh, which is where FOP was mixed as well. Um, some of it was mixed at Velvetone actually in, in Ellensburg, but, uh, I read a review of this, and it says that this song is a remix of the song "Week of Fire" off of Bumper Crop. I I listened to that song just to see, and I I could not hear any of the any of the any of that in this song. To me, it's it's a dubbed up version of of New Saigon. I would agree. There might be snips in there that I missed, but I would agree. Well, the title "Week of Corn" suggests that maybe it contains elements of "Week of Fire," but I I couldn't hear it. Perhaps. Yeah, sounds like some keyboards added by Steve to this. Uh, Very reminiscent of the keyboard sound Shadowy Men used on some of their songs, such as You Spin Me Around. Yeah, Farfisa. Yep. Uh, He told me the main Jim Crack Corn sample came from a comp called Old Mother Hippletoe, uh, rural and urban children's songs, 1978 New World Records, with vocals by Uncle Alec Dunford. He said he had to slow it down just slightly so it would be in tune with the with the music. Some of the other samples on this, like there's a Bruce Lee sample, came loaded on the sampler when he bought it. He told me back then samplers were loaded with samples like, you know, when when you bought them new, you know that you could never get away with now due to copyright reasons. Yeah, right. Yeah. I just love this track. We also He and I also talked a little bit about Duck Hunt. I, I had actually just finished watching the video when he called. He told me that that's the worst selling single ever on K Records. And, <laughs> and it, that it was done on a four track in his apartment. Um, he also told me there was possibly going to be a, a full length Duck Hunt el- album on CZ at one point. But it never oh, panned yeah. out. Yeah. The artwork, Ryan, as Bill mentions in the interview, and it says on the on the original LP it says thanks to Hunan restaurant in Portland you can see the full full mural on the front and back of the original original LP yeah Uh, it's kind of red ink on white it's like a a Chinese parade I guess you know with the balloons a gong some people playing drums people on horseback. That Hunan restaurant opened in 1979 and closed after 35 years in 2014 when owner Peter Lau retired. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's some good digging. I did some Hunan
1: restaurant (laughs) (laughs) research.
0: Yeah, I would agree. It's a parade.
1: Well, the reason I looked up the restaurant is I wanted to see if I could find any photos of the actual mirror. Oh,
0: yeah. Good call. Good call. Yeah, and and, I mean, the re-release is just a zoomed-in version of the front of the parade where someone is uh, hitting the drum and then the back is uh, basically the part of the mural that's right behind the drummer.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. They basically took portions of it, changed the colors for the SST right. reissue, greenish greenish purple blow, right. blown up almost like dot matrix style cover assembled by Bob Bierman. It's cool. I like what they did with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Good colors. In that Dave Dave Lang piece uh, on Perfect Sound Forever, Bob Bierman says, the title is taken from a Roxy Music lyric. That's why it's in quotation marks on the back of the original LP. And the the lyric is, a rhyme of rhyming guitars from the song, Oh Yeah, on the Flesh and Blood album by Roxy Music. Hmm. Any dead wax, Ryan? No dead wax. I only, like I said, I only have the
0: SST reissue, and I've got a, I've got a really beat up copy. It's a cutout. It's got the corners are all buggered. Yeah. Um, I don't have an original. Maybe there is on the original. I don't have it. Did you look into that? I couldn't find any info on the
1: original in terms of. Yeah. No, there isn't. Dead wax. uh, At least not according to discogs. Anyways, I don't have the original either. So, ballot result. Ballot result.
0: So this is track one of a new comp tape. Is that right? That's right. Ooh. I, I love starting a comp tape with an instro. Yeah. Hey? Oh, my
1: gosh. This is, this is important. All five of these songs are great. Like, I could mm-hmm. pick any of them. My favorites are New Saigon, Par Avion, and Week of Corn. I was thinking Par
0: Avion, too. But why don't we do New Saigon, just because that's a great way to start off a tape.
1: Yeah. And it's got the kind of the two guitarists on it, for sure. Ah, good call. Yeah. Ryan, thanks to Bill Owen for being on the show and Steve Fisk for, for uh FaceTiming you? FaceTiming me. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. It is a it is a huge honor. Thanks, guys. Yeah.
1: What's next week, Ryan?
0: Next week, Brandt, we're gonna get in the van with SST two forty two. The descendants enjoy LP. And we've got a special guest.
1: Yeah, we've got Brian Probart on the show. All right. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content.